Options activity has altered the investment landscape. Get an edge on this massive flow of funds with Tier 1 Alpha's Market Situation Report brought to you by Hedgeye. A daily newsletter of the latest moves in the options market and a weekly webcast featuring myself, Mike Green of Simplify Asset Management, and Tier 1 Alpha's Craig Peterson and David Pegler. Go to hedgeye.com research for more information. Hi, I'm Hedgeye's founder, Keith McCullough. Thanks for listening to this real conversation. If you like what you hear, you will love our investing research. We bring transparency, accountability, and actionable investing ideas to investors big and small. I'll put our investing process and team up against anyone in the world. Please visit hedgeye.com to subscribe and learn a better way to invest. I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome to another Real Conversation. This one's going to be with two of my favorite people in the business, and I'm going to introduce uh, what I'll call, well, it's not really an introduction. It's a thing that I, I it's a thing. It's called P3. It may not be what Max Taylor, Mike's son, uh, likes to finish in. P1 would be preferred, but P3 is preserving and protecting the pile, boys. So that's what uh, I want to talk about. I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, and first off, welcome as a, uh, as Mike Green buries an entire Starbucks to get us going here, we're going exactly. There we go. We got a lot of topics to 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 go through, um, but again, welcome, guys. Appreciate it. Uh, and I do think it's a real important time to have a practitioner discussion, like what you know, what the fuck's going on out there. And um, you know, inside of this, I know uh, you know because Mike and I talk frequently. Mike Mike Taylor and I, and he's like, well, look, every time I talk to Green, he just like then he just stops talking, and it's just like silence. And I said, well, I, I bet he's seen a lot of things he's never seen before. So let's just start with um, with that. This morning I wrote an early look note. Uh, it really had to do with you know the lack of buying protection. Um, institutional investors, you know what I what I wrote was, look, they're really not buying any protection. If you look at this on an intermediate to long term basis, defining that as not one to three days, of course, you know, call it the next one to three quarters. Uh, and you've written extensively about this. You talk a lot about it, Mike uh, Mike Green being. And can you just get into that and 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 how you um, have have stated that plainly? Why that might be? What you think the risks could be, et cetera? Well, I, I think the the simple answer is first of all, you're correct, right? We're seeing an extraordinary lack of interest in buying protection. Where we're seeing protection bought, it's almost always being bought in the form of put spreads as compared to outright puts. So basically, nobody wants that left tail anymore, right? We've all decided that. And the seam tail was a fool, and that the downside, uh, the you know, the unpredictable nature of left tails, um, no longer really exists, right? That we're we're totally safe, and that's largely because it's just failed to deliver. And so people are desperately trying to reduce the cost of hedging. That means they're extraordinarily well protected through kind of what I would call the twenty-five delta or even the fifteen delta move, which I think is on a daily option is going to be down 1%, on a weekly option is going to be down about 25 on a monthly option is going to take you down about 5 um, But beyond that, they're just selling that protection back to try to minimize the cost of their hedging for the very simple reason that they have to keep up, right? They can't actually allow the market to run away from them the way it has this year by and large. And so with the S&P is up as much as it is, with the NASDAQ effectively embarrassing every professional manager out there, you know, we're looking at a situation where people just can't afford that protection under almost any circumstance. And ironically, that's happening in a time period in which people can no longer buy protection in the form of treasuries. Mm -hmm. right? They just don't feel comfortable that that protects their portfolio in the way that they would anticipate. 
Now, when you say they, it'd be an easy one to go to Mike T on. There is a they, right? I mean, there's a they. Uh, what I think you're referring to is they, money managers can't afford that because they need to chase their performance bogeys. Or in Mike T's case, they'll say they need to protect the seat, like so they don't get ejected from it. Uh, but you know, can you talk about that, Mike T? Just in terms of because the they, like who I stand for, and we build Hedge I Nation for, you know, and every single day is, is they is the people, right? I mean, they're the ones who aren't getting their portfolios protected. But when you say they, it sounds like they may be doing it for their own um, for their own compensation uh, benefits. Well, these are really exciting moments in markets, and that's usually when things don't make a whole lot of sense. And one of the aspects that we've had to endure is an incredible, and I'm looking at charts right now. I'm sorry, I'm like blazing through all this stuff as we talk, um, because this is what I do every morning and every day. Uh, we have an enormous number of uh, hedge fund managers that have been, are in the process and have been ejected. And this, these are the guys that are running, uh, generally speaking, neutral books, and you will call them the pods. And these are the big shops like Citadel, Millennium, Ballyasney, Exodus Point. And this is hundreds of billions of dollars that's out there. In fact, when you look down the line at all these biotech stocks and all these consumer stocks, and I'll just name it for you just off the bat, you know, uh, let's see, uh, Starting with 16 billion market cap, three, four, two, two, four, 12, five, six, nine, seven. That's the percent of the short of the float of that stock. And virtually all of them are in the pods. These are the guys that are out there and they're short. You know, this is exactly what is their book. And it is short uh, things that they think are going to underperform and long others they think will perform. And it is a very simple recipe. It's very difficult to actually do. And when things go awry, uh, we get massive unwinds. And Ludix being at 12 tells you we're in the dust right now. The dust has settled from a massive unwind. And the big piece to that right now, and I've talked to a number of funds about this, is beware of the negative momentum rotation. And this is a bit of what we're enduring right now. Mike Breen and I talked about this on Friday and last night in that we're going to have a, a re-weighting occur. It started already. And, and that's really because the dispersion is the widest I've ever seen it in my life. Mm. We have a dispersion of mega cap uh, names that are up 40, 50%. The mag seven, you would call them. There's probably about 25 actually in total that are uh, massive outperformers. And that's it. And then everything else is crap uh, and down, many of them, 30, 40, 50, 70%. So you always have to review the winning hand. The winning hand is along that short this. That's your survivorship that's being represented right now in the market. As we turn the calendar page to January, everyone has to think, can I stay mega overweight, these mega caps, the mag seven? and not pay attention to all these other things? Or is somebody, and it's not what the truth is going to be. It is not what is actually going to happen to the earnings of these stocks. The question is, is somebody else going to blink? Is somebody else going to trim here and buy there? And that's the biggest risk because there is nobody on the other side. And that's why we have seen, in my view, the big move right now in positive momentum beginning to sell off and negative momentum ripping. That is people starting to blink in just the slightest bit. Well, you know what's so, interesting, it's interesting about that is, is it, you, it came with, you know, it really actually did start on the, you know, if you didn't have Thursday's move in Google, 
which was once again brought about with an AI headline. They were introducing Gemini or whatever, which actually had a fake component to it. And it was a one-day move. I mean, but it was a real big one-day move because it brings you back into this place, Mike Green, where, you know, people have to chase that. I mean, for the three days prior, we saw the beginning, actually, of multiple breakdowns on my signal. It wasn't just Google. It was Meta. It was NVIDIA. You know, these are uh, Tesla's already bearish trade and trend on my signal. So you get some, and this is very typical of the beginning of something new, is that something new is happening, right? They don't just all go vertical every single day. And um, it happened again yesterday. So we had the three days to start last week. We had the first day of this week, which was typically a markup Monday for the whole year, as you recall. Like, I mean, we've seen these epic Mondays. I think there was 19 Mondays in a row where the NASDAQ was up. Um, you know, whereas, you know, you look at any other day in the week, <laughs> it obviously wasn't doing that. So so how do you, like, take me from 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 there, you know, to, to where that winning hand, and by the way, in the Tier 1 Alpha data, which you're very familiar with, on slide 19 today, guys, we showed the chart of MAG-7 versus the S&P 500 equal weight, um, which, you know, if that, if you don't, unless you don't know what mean reversion is or bubbles um, or both, uh, that wouldn't concern you. But uh, I, I'm talking to Mike Green. I'm talk, not talking yeah. some, to some noob. Oh, well, you might be, but that's okay. Um, <laughs> the, the, look, I, 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 the, the character of the year changed radically after October, right? We ended the year in terms of the fiscal year for most of the mutual funds. Many of those who have to um, think about the tax ramifications of how they construct their portfolios. And basically, they sold all their losers over the course of September, October, and then started buying them back. And so from October 31st, and we've had this extraordinary rally. You actually saw it. You talked about the mean reversion component. You know, the equal weight S&P 500, I'm pulling it up right now, has gone from as of October 27th, it was down 4% for the year. It's now down, it's now up 9.5%, right? So, I mean, these are years that have happened in the space of give or take eight trading weeks, including, of course, a Thanksgiving holiday. <laughs> um, similar for the Russell, similar for the Russell 2000 equal weight, right? Which the Russell 2000, while it is small caps, it is also a cap weighted index. We saw the exact same phenomenon that Mike Taylor was highlighting in terms of you know a select number of stocks, and really it was all a function of the market capitalization on a relative basis. And so post-October 31st or post-October 27th, we've seen the Russell 2000 rally from down, you know, the Russell 2000 equal weight rallied from down 12.3% to today it's sitting darn close to flat. Um, you know, these are extraordinary moves. They're, they're almost identical to the type of behavior that we saw in a slightly longer time period at the very beginning of uh, 2021, and also in uh, the the rally that we saw in the summer, right? It feels like effectively all that's happened is we've removed the selling pressure on a temporary basis, and now we'll see what happens, you know, as we come into the new year. But this really does feel like tax played a big part in the rotation, mm -hmm. and I think Mike hit on on the dynamic of the crowding within the pod shops, for example. And Mike, you and I talking last night, you had an absolutely fantastic example of why you might want to be long something that looks like absolute garbage. And I think this is actually a really critical point for people to understand. When you think about those pod shops, what Mike was highlighting, and I, I'll let him speak for himself in a second, but what Mike was highlighting is that they have to remove all the known factors from their portfolios. So it's not okay for a pod shop hedge fund group to simply say, okay, we're going to go massively long momentum because we know that momentum works. 
right? Izzy Englander is too smart for that. Ken Griffin's too smart for that. So they require them to effectively run a factor-neutral portfolio or a largely factor-neutral portfolio where they have to find something to own that effectively creates so much negative momentum or positive momentum so they'll short something. And I'll just pick an example here, like a Carvana, where they'll short um, a runaway you know, stock like a Tesla earlier in the year, not so much because they think that it's going to lose money, as much as they think that it's going to neutralize their exposure to their fa- that factor with a very small allocation of capital. And so when those things start to move against them and actually move to the point like a Carvana, which is up, you know, give or take 500% for the year, when those things start to blow up in your face, you have to cover, you have to go through that rotation. And as you go through that rotation, you have to change all other sorts of stuff. And we've seen that over and over this year. What happened yesterday was actually fascinating. It was something totally, totally different. We wrote about this a lot at Tier 1. I know you read the note, Keith. But if you look at what happened yesterday, we had the NASDAQ actually announce that they were going to change their methodology for the NASDAQ 100 construction and expand the pool of companies that they were going to reduce in market cap. Most people had presumed that maybe they would do another special rebalance that might hit Apple, might hit Microsoft. They decided to expand it to the seven largest stocks, the MAG-7. Yep. And when they did that, but that is actually saying there's not a net sale, right? Remember, that's a sale of those names. And then you have to put the money to work to everything else. And I don't know if you guys can pull up the chart from tier one that highlights this. I actually put it into a tweet. I can pull it on my Excel. I've got it readily available if we need to. But you actually saw the market you know, run itself in a position where those seven actually behaved exactly as they normally do, where the largest market caps were actually outperforming. And then the rest of the market, the other 93 stocks on the NASDAQ 100, did the exact same thing. You had this, you know, size worked, market cap worked, as long as you adjusted for that one rebalance phenomenon. It was really an extraordinary day that speaks to the power of index construction in terms of market behavior. Mm-hmm. My, uh, Mike, uh, T, you want to expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. With the garbage. We know you know garbage. You know, I do is, know garbage. This guy knows garbage. Uh, in fact, the name that we talked about was uh, DoorDash. And um, I think I've disclosed uh, DoorDash. Oh. Um, I'm involved with DoorDash, uh, I think, on the short side. Um, but but anyway, you know, they got added to the NASDAQ 100. And I was I was mentioning to Keith the, or, uh, to Michael the other night that... Uh, that DoorDash, in my view, is on the cusp of a major deceleration. It's trading at, you know, what two hundred times next year's number and and uh, forty billion dollar market cap. Five percent of the float is short, and I think it's going to have a massive adjustment in growth in the front half of next year. And we're probably going to start finding that out in the credit data this week. Uh, stocks gone straight up, and what it really went straight up into was not this. It went straight up into uh, rebalancing. And as you as you see, uh, it gets added to the Nasdaq 100, and every every single uh, Tom, Dick, and Harry has to buy a little slug of it. Now the index arms have already front run it, and that's why it's probably flat today. It looks flat to me, uh, but this is a great example of a stock that has had uh, diminishing, um, let's say, attributes to it in my view, uh, and it's gone vertical. And this has a lot to do with the allocation and hedge funds blowing up, having to take down that book. 
and I can't be I can't be long this anymore because my short went up too much. Mm-hmm. And that's a, I think that's a great example of DoorDash. Now on the other side, there's a lot of money to be made. Um, I sort of figured this out earlier on where I'm fundamentally bearish uh, a firm, uh, but I turned around and went long it. Uh, yes, it's going to totally blow up at some point next year. And I didn't know how far it would go. I just knew that everybody was shorted and Christmas sales are going to look okay. And that we, and it doubled. And that's like the shocker part. You just can't believe the moves that you've seen. This is not people really interested in buying this stuff. This is pods blowing the hell up. Yeah. Yeah, that's a crit- crit- critical observation. I mean, it's, it's, and you'll hear that a lot, right? I mean, you're going to hear, you know, our the hedge fund side of the business is decorated with schadenfreude, where it's always popular to talk about who's blowing up, right? Because if one's performance, back to Mike's point, Mike, Mike Green's point, sucks relative to any major index, you know, it's one thing to cite the NASDAQ or the S&P, which you can definitely not cite your return relative to it, uh, because you'd say you suck, right? I mean, so you don't want to suck, so you want to say somebody else sucks. And um, somebody always sucks, uh, you know, do you, <laughs> Mike Taylor has a lot of one-liners on this. I don't want to get him going, but, but you know, like, it's like, okay, so DoorDash goes and let's, I think it's really useful for people to look at stocks. I mean, so pull up charts while we're talking. I mean, DoorDash just went from 70 to hundred uh, from the, you know, from this, from the lows of where we just were in October after three straight down months in the S&P 500. Carvana, however, so Mike Green, this is like, this is how, um, I feel bad for people on stuff like this. I mean, genuinely feel bad because it's the people who trade DoorDash and Carvana that get screwed, right? Like they're buying, they're sitting there buying Carvana at $56 a share at the end of the broadening rally. Remember it was a broadening rally? You got to buy the Russell, you, uh, you got to buy the Russell, you know, back in July, you got to buy Carvana. It's at 56. It went from 56 to 26 by October. Like I'm pretty sure everybody knows that that's a significant decline, right? That, by my math, is a 53% decline. What do you need to be up to get back to break even if you're that chart monkey? You're going to be up about 113%. Oh, but it's not. It's now at $38, so it's up 46%. But, oh, man, is that is that chart look good? You know, it's, it's the same as the Russell. The Russell's still down 6% from where it was in July, but the chart looks good. But it's, you know, <laughs> like, how many times can you suck people in before, as Mike Taylor, I got to give up, give up your one-liner before you can blow? I mean, how far, how far do you have to, how far do you have to suck people into these things? And, and what kind of a risk do you see that? I mean, to me, I, I, it's, it's a rhetorical question, but like, have you thought about that? Because we've seen many times, guys, where, whether it be to January and then all of a sudden you suck people into January this year, we're old enough to remember that. And then Within two months, we're in a financial or regional banking crisis, you know, to those regional lows. Uh, and then you suck them all back into July and then boom, they collapse them back down again. You've had like this rolling bear market in the stuff that's actually been in a bear market. And once again, you're sucking people back into the Russell and into the S- you know, S&P equal wake, Mike Green, to your point. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's right. And I mean, look, uh, Carvana, I've owned in the past year, or actually more accurately, I've shorted within the past year. I actually managed to time that reasonably well. It's about the only thing I timed well this year. <laughs> the, um, you know, but on, on the uh, on Carvana, that's a perfect example, right? And we've seen this with, um, you know, these poor, unfortunate souls who have participated in things like GameStop or in AMC, where these, you know, uh, evangelical management teams who speak directly to retail investors and basically convince them that they are, you know, in this alongside the retail investor, right? What a fantastic use of language. You know, we're fighting together against Wall Street. 
Carvana was a fantastic example of this, right? It has, it, you know, the stock ran on that reverse momentum dynamics, unwinding the characteristics of 2022. This is a company that's, you know, never profitable on real terms. Mike Ta- Mike Taylor is extremely familiar with the dynamics in terms of how that they're actually selling out their their financing to show some cash flow characteristics. They restructured their debt, effectively perfected the debt so that the debt now has nearly perfect claims against the company. And one of the terms in order to get that debt was they had to go out and issue equity. Mm. They couldn't issue equity. And so the CEO buys half of the issuance that is supposed to go out. People interpret this as, oh my gosh, he has such confidence. The stock rockets to, as you pointed out, 54. And you know what he's doing within literally a week of having bought half of the equity that, that needs to be issued in order to obtain this financing? He's selling shares. No. He's selling shares. Oh, it's so dirty. It's dirty. Oh. It's disgusting. That's dirty. Is it? Yeah. yeah you can, can do we that. About, can we talk it, about the- That type of behavior, you're taking advantage of like, they, everybody just wants their bubbles back, to be clear. All these charts- including DoorDash, you're just like, DoorDash should be 250 bucks. I mean, these are these are things that the retail investor, whether they acknowledge it or not, it's their biggest mistake always. They bag hold, right? Like, it's 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 the memes, it's the profitless tech, it's the stuff that everybody owns, which are the seven stocks. You know, anyway, Mike Mike Taylor, you're going to say something. I would just say the elephant in the room that really sparked all this, this movement and the VIX being a 12 is something Michael and I talk about all the time, and it's liquidity. Yeah. It is something that we have to cover because it is a major, major issue for next year. And I have a conspiracy theory, go figure, (laughs) that um, Yellen uh, got the notice uh, from the White House to, and everyone did, to boost liquidity in every way possible uh, for everywhere, everyone, because Biden's polling numbers are horrific going into the primaries. And he has to improve, and one of the ways to improve your polling data is get the stocks to the moon. And Mike might agree that Yellen uh, has pulled uh, every rabbit out of the hat and the tricks out of the bag in order to uh, finagle away to greater liquidity. Mm-hmm. Mike, would you like to talk about it? I know you're. Well, I mean, I, I wrote about this a little bit in, in my Substack, and I, in general, I, I think that's true, right? I think it's also you. You want to be very careful, right? Because liquidity is one of these weird things that is actually self-feeding. Um, you know, if the value of my stock goes up, I now have additional margin power that gives me additional borrowing capability, that gives me additional buying power, et cetera. And so it becomes a momentum exercise in some ways. The same thing is ultimately happening with the price of treasuries. So when bonds start to rally, their value as collateral begins to rise, et cetera. And everybody has competing definitions of liquidity, right? Um, we're all familiar with things like the TGA, right? Treasury General Account, which by the way, didn't exist until 2015, right? That was actually created in response to the government shutdowns. And basically, you know, Mike is highlighting this underlying dynamic. Apologize, my room uh, phone is now ringing. Give me one second here to mute that out. Mike Green also runs a 1900 Psychic Friends Network line. <laughs> I thought, did he actually, I was writing some things down. I didn't notice that he actually My phone is went away. Theme off the hook, by the way, so something must be going on. By the way, while Mike uh, turns his phone off, like, it's not just the cheap. That was not my thought. That was, my, that was the hotel room phone for some oh, reason. Oh, that actually. We couldn't even hear. In a hotel in Philadelphia. Lucky me. 
Now it, it's it's the government. They're they've tapped this. This is you know you guys know they're they're watching right. And you're about to drop truth. You know like like the CPI, the health insurance component today that you know, understates CPI. Like when we talk about these things, they somehow find a way to do shit. Anyway, that's real conspiracy theory, Mike. Well, it's true. They cut me off when I'm on the cell on the cell signal on the call in the morning when we get into the <laughs> real good stuff. Uh, anyway, the um, so you're on the TGA. Please explain. Yeah, no. So so the TGA was created in reaction to the government shutdowns. And just the easiest way to think about what the TGA is, is it's just a, a slush fund that allows you to do whatever you want, regardless of whether Congress has approved it or not. Um, we've built that back up. We built it back up with the issuance of bills. And this is actually important. I, you know, One of the mistakes I made this year was thinking that the Treasury was going to follow their originally planned issuance schedule. <laughs> they didn't. They shortened up the duration of everything that they're providing. When you think about the government issuing through bills, it's pretty much the same thing as issuing cash, right? It's a, it's not a coupon. It's a discounted piece of paper. There's zero credit risk. There's no opportunity for anyone to basically say, is there any volatility associated with this thing? The answer is no, All right? So it becomes effectively a cash replacement. You can buy as much of it as you want without actually depleting your buying power. And the flip side of that in turn is then the government gets to spend that money. And when that money is spent without a tax obligation wiping it out or a borrowing to reduce the liquidity in the system, which is really what treasury borrowing oper- uh, um, activities are, right? They're a mopping up of liquidity uh, that is being released by government spending. If you do that with bills, it just doesn't suck it up and soak it up in the same way. And so we've had this liquidity fuel expansion. And what Mike is highlighting is, is next year, who knows? Is Janet Yellen going to run down the TGA? She's been given, you know, she she likely has basically decided that the single most important thing is the defeat of Donald Trump, which seems like a very strange thing for a Treasury secretary to be focused on. But it's entirely possible that's what she's focused on. Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting is that when you overlay and thank you for explaining that. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if they were trying to mute this because you shouldn't do that. Right. You shouldn't not be able to, you should not be able to have no congressional approval and do that. But you do that. You shouldn't be able to do what the Fed does. You're an unelected body, but you do that. This is what pisses people off. This is why we're in the the fourth turning. Guys, show slide 39. You don't want to have a recession. You want to have a soft landing or no landing? Do this. Like, this is government spending on a rate of change basis. You know, these these levels, you know, and by the way, they are to do this, Bush did this too. It's bipartisan. This when you're when you're about to hit the the shit's about to hit the fan, just spend your brains out. But this made George Bush. And Republicans look, look, look tame. I mean, on the left side, those are like 12 and 14 percent year over year growth rates in government spending, Mike. And, and again, OK, oh, the economy's fine. Buy stocks, but only buy seven stocks. You know, it's a very and on the right side. We're showing you know that relationship as well. I find this to be just absolutely, um, you know, amazing that all this actually happened. But now that's your comparison. Right. When you, when, yeah. you, when you say there's no recession, and I, I, I got to say, I mean, she's got to know a little better. Like, I think Janet Yellen knows about the base effects, right? It's going to be with those government spending base effects, she can't accelerate the economy into the election. But she's got the TGA and you're saying that is or going to, I couldn't follow like to the end from Mike to Mike. What, what, you're saying she's going to go for more of that or she's tapped out on that, on the slush fund? 
So the, que- the question is, she's refilled the slush fund. Will she draw it down? Ah, Effectively, uh, okay. will she double up on the liquidity yeah. dynamic? Yeah, because it's it's yeah because it's short. They she shortened the duration, so it's just like the cash is there. Right. Uh, okay, but you can't you can't now. You do need congressional approval to you know to ramp the deficit from here, like that government spending chart to comp the comps on that. You do you do need to have you already have a political fight on that. Well, you've got a political fight on it, but you also don't. What you know, we don't have an omnibus budget. We continue to engage in continuing resolutions, which effectively is saying. Yeah, go as you were before, right? So this is, you know, Mike's point that, you know, or your point that you're highlighting in terms of that rate of change of government spending. You're still going to be dumping an unbelievable amount of money in. I mean, this is just a complete abrogation of responsibility by our federal government, but the comps get really hard, this, right? This- so Daniel D. Martino Booth, who you guys have had on repeatedly as a great friend of, of Hedgeye, you know, she's highlighted the fraud behind things like the employee retention credits. The spending on that was unbelievable. This yeah. is a program that was introduced and supposed to be $55 billion in total spending, and it was running $20 billion a month in August of 2023. That's crazy. I mean, yeah, obviously Trump's got fraudiness to it, but so does Biden. I mean, on this side, I mean, it's not like it's not like we don't, both candidates don't have some component of fraudiness to what they're doing on these numbers. I mean, I can't believe that you, you can say, well, look at slide 107. You can say, oh, the jobs work. It's great. Because a third of the jobs that we add are out of your taxpayer money, and those are government jobs. <laughs> yeah, it's like- Actually, it gets better. It gets better than that, though. Um, if you, if, uh, it's not. You, I think you have the wrong chart up. But if you actually pull up uh, slide uh, one hundred seven, there you go. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Yes. So, so government hiring has been on a rocket ship, and that's not totally uncommon if it's being driven by state and local. But this is weirdly being driven by federal. Right, it's not weird. It's what you'd expect if you're trying to make it look as- kind of what you'd expect if you were out trying to, you know, rehire the postmaster general in a uh, replay of 19th century patronage dynamics. Um, I, I agree with what you're saying, and I would also highlight that it, you know th- this sounds really painful, but if you look at things like the birth death adjustment, right, this is a measure that is designed to simulate the number of new jobs that are being created by new businesses being created. And attempting to reduce the revisions to non-farm payrolls. Well, as you know, we've had negative revisions to non-farm payrolls every single month this year. That's before we get to the quote-unquote actual revisions that are going to come through what's called the Quarterly Census on Unemployment and Wages, QCEW. And we're now at a point where over half the jobs that are being created, according to the BLS statistics in the private sector, are coming through this birth-death adjustment, basically. Yeah. Jobs we haven't actually been able to show are there, but we're going to assume are there because we think a ton of new businesses are being created. It's yeah. just garbage. No, it is garbage. Really garbage. That, that's why, like, um, guys go to slide 41. What he just said has resulted in, you know, the downward revisions to every single month of jobs numbers because, you know, this birth-death adjustment doesn't quite get to get to the finish line when they have to get to the actual numbers. And this is very consistent with going into the the prior recession being the 2008 recession. But, um, you know, Mike Taylor, what else on this before we get off this? This is not a rabbit hole and this is not a conspiracy theory. This is actually, no. these are actual numbers. This is what well, so, so just very, very quickly, Keith, I do want to push back a little bit. Like there is definitely, there are individuals who are capable of directing that type of stuff. That's a very dangerous game, right? That's a game that if you get caught, you go to jail. Yeah. But there's also really talented economists who are doing in their best job that they possibly can and saying, look, you know, these are our models of how the economy works. Now, what we know about models like the birth-death model 
is that they underpredict the number of jobs that are being created by new businesses coming out of recessions and overpredict them in time periods in which we're going into a recession. That should be one of the clear warnings when you have this type of continual downward revisions. It's telling you that the models are trying to direct you to going straight and you're starting to fall down, mm-hmm. right? And you just, if you think about it, it's like a moving, you know, you're moving away from the moving average to the downside. It's telling you that the underlying trend is one of weakening. Yeah, and the bond markets figured that out, Mike T. I mean, the breakdown in bond yields, you know, you could you could just draw a straight line between that and the recovery and all the crap. Um, you know, that's been the same, it's been the same trade, but you can't on one hand say you know, see that and not understand that falling bond yields reflect a deterioration of economic conditions, which is squarely, you know, we can show we don't need to show every single data point on that throughout October that was reported in November, but but that's where we're at. So how do you think how do you think we get Mike T from there? Because there's like almost like this, um, there's a many part movie. But the one that you're telling is, you know, okay, you go from here to where she was on the TGA to there, then you're either agreeing or not with me that we're in a recession, entering recession in the first half. But then you got, you still, they're still, you know, highly um, incentivized to make it go the other way again. I mean, whether they're reelected or not. Well, uh, Janet has been uh, financing that bill purchases largely out of uh, what you would call reverse repo, which is cash parked at the Fed that's sitting there earning a yield, um, a, uh, the equivalent yield to the short end. But uh, bills pay a little bit better. So they they essentially she's giving this money parked there a uh, free ride by issuing a whole bunch of bills. And so they can pick up a few bips by buying that. And so that money is not really coming out of the real economy. It's been coming out of the bank's balance sheets and it's still treated uh, as cash because it's a never default bill. And that has been a big driver of the liquidity uh, as of late in the past quarter. And it's had, a, I believe, a profound impact on look at like IGCDS, for example. As soon as it started, IGCDS just tanked. Uh, and, and that's that's one of the threats out there, five-year IGCDS, where you can see stress in the uh, funding markets. Mm-hmm. So. So that's that, but we're out now. As of around uh, week two, week three, the reverse repo gets low enough such that that she can't use that as a source of funds anymore to, to basically prop up liquidity. So what's next? And that's what I've been spending a lot of time on trying to figure out what's next, what bat, what is she going to pull out? And I think that she's going to have to loosen the capital requirements for banks, even though the capital requirements are scheduled to get tighter. Uh, I believe that she will be stepping in and saying something, doing something. It'll be in a footnote on page 38 of something. And the the capital requirements will be relieved a bit at banks so that they can buy more bills. Mm-hmm. And and so she can keep this going. Uh, a very smart fella uh, that I'm friends with uh, mentioned this weekend that she blew it. I don't understand why she went this far so early. She kind of, you know, used all of her ammo at the wrong time. And I was saying, no, she has to get uh, Biden's poll numbers up into the into the uh, primaries. So it's actually right on time. And that means that she has another something she's going to try to pull out of her hat. And it has to be that, in my view. And then after that, she was, Mike said, uh, potentially run down the TGA right into the election. Now, that's sort of like the liquidity. Now, that's just to keep the status quo of liquidity. One of the other issues that I see coming into the year is that the comps, especially on government spend, 
is really, really hard. If you recall in the front half of last year, uh, well, still this year, uh, 23, uh, I know it seems like it was, it's dog year. That's <laughs> okay. So uh, we had about a 300 billion plus in the employee retention uh, credit. And so a whole bunch of small, middle sized and all companies who retained employees received enormous checks in the front half of last year. And of course they spent it. And a lot of it went into the stock market and such. The issue is the comps are very, very, very hard. We also have pricing comps, which was very, very strong in the front half of last year. Not that, not the case now. And then the last part that we should really talk about is what happens on November 10th of 2024. What does that look like? Well, oh, it looks like that the comps for Build Back Better evaporate. That's about a trillion dollars a year. And the new treasury coming in, whoever it is, whether it's Democrat or Republican, is literally going to be handed a balance sheet that's a bag of dog shit on fire. They're going to be on a teaser rate up to the yin-yang. This SPR will likely be very depleted. And I mean, you're really setting up for a very, very, very difficult liquidity time. And this has a lot to do with how much overspend the government has uh, produced over the past 10 years. In fact, I mean, if you add up the overspend of the government uh, versus our GDP, it's essentially all the GDP that the U.S. has had for a decade. And copying that, we're, we're at that spot now where the cost of capital matters to the government. They have a real difficult time funding this. And, and we're going to see that pressure this year and we're going to see that pressure next year. So the probability of them coming up with multi-trillion dollar grab bag stuff, that they need to do that just to keep the comps even. And keeping it even will probably put us in recession anyway. I'm thinking more it's going to be down because the balance sheet that the uh, next government is going to be handed is going to be so incredibly ugly. Uh, and my question to Mike is, and we talk about it all the time, is when is the market going to see that? Because they have to see it in 24. So it's going to be January the 4th, the day before my birthday is in January. Uh, it's it's uh, Well, one the, like let me tee um, Mike Green up for this for a bit, because I... That's a good, it took us 38 minutes to go from where I started to where you just got us back to, which is what, you know, nobody is allowed to hedge that runs institutional money or they lose their job or they get ejected from their seat. That again is not being a fiduciary for, for, your, insti for your institutional clients. It's not, it has nothing to do with what the cycle is going to be in one to three quarters. What they on the government side is doing, we just spent a good 10, 15 minutes on that. What if you're somebody in Chicago and you're that they, you get to look at everything not really mattering until next week, right? So let's look at this, Mike, like in terms of how it's depicted on Tier 1 Alpha. Slide three from this morning's uh, stat pack, guys, sh shows you super, this is super short dated vol against the calendar of events. So that number, as you know, Mike, last week was like between 9 and 11. You know, exactly. And then all of a sudden, oh, shit, we got the CPI and the Fed. Let's take it to 16. Yeah, and then and then after that, guys, don't worry. The water's warm. Come back and see the, how that I did. How I did that. That goes right out to my birthday. It goes all the way back down to twelve. It's fine. You don't have to risk manage anything. Mike Taylor just said it's fine. Come on in. Come on in. And and that's actually it, it, it's not a joke. That's what the you know that's what the term structure looks like because that's what people have been forced to do relative than to relative. Um, you know, as opposed to risk managing intermediate to longer term risks. Well, it's 
you know, th this is one of the benefits and it's also one of the concerning things about the zero data expiry options, right? So zero data expiry options are really nothing other than an option that has been previously written that just expires that day. They are created two weeks in advance. That's what allows us to build the detail on that tier one chart that you're looking at. And this is something that you really couldn't do prior to May of 2022. You can actually now go out and say, what do I care about on any particular day? And, it, you know, Keith, as, as you correctly pointed out, if we went back a week ago, there was no bid for any option on that. It was flat as a pancake, slightly upward sloping, but basically really flat starting at, you know, single digit all the way up to, I think it rose maybe 12, 13, uh, two weeks out. As we approach the Fed press conference tomorrow, and it's really the press conference that seems to matter much more than the actual release of, of the decision, because we already know what the decision is going to be, right? We now care whether the high priest is, you know, leaning forward as he addresses the audience, where he's saying, shut the fucking door. You know, it really just is, it, it really, really just depends, right? Um, but what people now have the option of doing, option literally, is to say, well, I'm going to hedge that event, yep. right? And by only paying to hedge that one day, they effectively are isolating it. We say this at tier one all the time, a hedged pot never boils, right? You're effectively watching the market and you're saying, okay, I want to protect against that. Even if the events occur, as they occur, you unwind your hedges, removing the pressure that you put on the market because your hedge is so short dated, there's no positioning for a systemic event that occurs. The only way this breaks effectively is if you see a day that is so extreme that it's, you know, it's, this is why we're setting up something that is not dissimilar to the Volmageddon events of early February, 2018. There's some characteristics that really don't exist that were in place back then, but you're starting to move towards this and you're seeing guys who are volatility specialists. We're really starting to highlight this and saying, Hey, wait a second, guys, this complex is getting really big. People are taking for granted that it's capable of absorbing this bottle, th this um, volatility, if it emerges. And it's not really entirely clear that that's true. Well, it's, 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 you know, when Goldman's prime brokerage uh, report at the end of the day is even warning people that there could be some risks associated with not having any protection, you know, that, that, no. that, that you're getting a little closer, right? I mean, um, not there, but, but getting closer. And I think that that's, a very good point. Like people struggle, like um, people struggle. I struggle, struggle every friggin' day. I have to timestamp every position to the whole free world here. Um, and I, what I said yesterday was like, I was like, I stopped shorting things once I saw where volatility got bit up ahead of these events. Because to your yeah. point, a hedge pot never boils. I mean, it's like, right. but people really do struggle with me saying that. They, like, you can listen because people on Wall Street, I guess, old Wall Street, have been uh, trained for tone. Okay, look, Mike Taylor, Mike Green, and the chubby Irish guy in the middle sound pretty bearish. Maybe I should be, like, shorting the shit out of this thing every single day. But that's actually not the way that the game should be played right now. You should be very attentive to where puts are actually being bid up and on what date so that you're not just giving away money. Um, can you comment on that just to help kind of the the average Joe? Because a lot of the average Joe loses a lot of money buying puts because they don't know when to buy them. Well, that, that's, I mean, part of the irony, right? Like I'm about as bearish as anyone can be thinking about the longer term implications of many of the things that we talk about. And I actually am very under invested in equities because that's one of the ways of being hedged, right? I think that there's really attractive. You talk about the three Ps, you know, preserve, protect, et cetera. You're being 
being given an incredible opportunity at the front of the curve, much less so at the back of the curve, given the bond rally that's occurred so far. But in terms of, you know, putting your money into a CD or putting your money into a three-month treasury bill and earning five plus percent in an environment of 3% inflation, and I'm sure there's screams, you know, going up in the audience like, uh, inflation is totally a lie and blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> but the simple reality is, is that using the models that we have um, and thinking about how powerful a two plus percent real return is at that front of the curve, it gives you the luxury of waiting, right? But as a professional investor, I rarely have that opportunity. If I'm running a fund, if I'm running a millennium fund, just like they're going to turn around and say, you can't have momentum, they're not going to let me park my money in T-bills and get paid for it. Mm. And so I got to do something else. Got to act. This is this is one of those weird situations where the retail investor may actually have an advantage because there's nobody looking over their shoulder and saying, hey, aren't you putting that money to work? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I mean, they've already shot that out of, you know, like that was in the water. It's been shot you know, dead in the water. I mean, you know, I'm long gold, uranium, India, Bitcoin. You know, these things are all ripping. They're making like if you're long spy, you're kind of boring, right? Old wall guy. Yeah, exactly. You know, like, I mean, if, if you're really going to get a rate cut, that's really where you go to the vein. OK, is this is this is so it's an interesting setup where there are many alternatives. I mean. I'm actually some somewhat unnerved, but then then excited that I have so many bloody things that I actually own right now going into this kind of an outlook. Because, again, a lot of those things would do pretty well. Um, I don't know about uh, India, but um, you know, nuclear with geopolitical risk rising and continuing to rise and seeing the kind of um, the setup that we see with the Chinese uh, going into outright quad four deflation. There's a lot of, there's a lot going on. Um, but, you know, back to you, Mike, Mike Taylor, what do you what do you th- what would you say? to, you know, you and I were in Vegas at the F1. You know, how many times in your life or even at that event does somebody come up to Mike Taylor? By the way, people come up to Mike Taylor all the time. Hey, I know who you are. You know, they're all, they're, they, they, they love you, man. And, but they want, they want to know what to do. And they don't know what to do. But they might have a pile. And they might want to preserve and protect that pile. Like I even heard, um, who was saying it the other day? Eddie George, former NFL star. Now, uh, I think he's a high net worth advisor or something. He's like, I always tell all these young NFL guys, you know, don't lose the pile. I'm like, no shit. So, so what, do you, what, do you, what, what would you tell people? We've talked so, so far about the government, institutional investors, hedge funds. What about all those people out there that are sitting there like nerve wracked about missing the next move in the NASDAQ? Well, sometimes the narrative becomes very obvious and that, the argument right now and the setup is, and part of why uh, volatility has been crushed, is because uh, the Fed is going to engineer a soft landing. And the, you can take a look at the predictions in the dot plot on when they're going to cut rates. And the and they're very soon, by the way. And the only reason that they are going to cut rates is because the economy stinks. And usually, that's not good for stocks. But every single time I've seen it, everyone thinks that it's good for stocks, assumes <laughs> that it's good for stocks, buys it. And we saw this in 2000. Yeah. We saw this in 2007. We were like, wow, that's an ugly storm on the horizon. And everyone says, yeah, but it's going to go away. And they they buy and then they get, you know, rug ripped. And 
Mike and I talk about this a lot. Mike Green, brilliant fellow over there, great hair. And <laughs> we talk about this all the time uh, on why is it that they don't see it? Uh, you know, because we saw this so many times before. Why don't they see it? And I have to remind Mike where we are on the on the experience bell curve. The last time we saw this on the experience bell curve, we were right in the middle. We were the masses and we sort of didn't really kind of maybe didn't see it coming in real time. We caught it uh, in time to save our careers. Most didn't. But we're now, Mike, you and I and Keith, we're all about the same age. We're on the far end of experience on that curve of distribution of investors. And that's why the markets don't see it. They never see it. They're not allowed to see it. Nobody reads the history. Nobody under, nobody ever reads the history. So it's our job not to cry from the top of the mountain, but to warn them. We've seen this before. This is probably going to happen again. If you look at the comps, if you look at the predictions for the interest rates, if you look at the liquidity in the system, if you look at the setup in the VIX, uh, and then and then let's take a look on the ground floor. What's going on in the ground floor? Well, I own um, uh, several uh, rental properties, for instance, and uh, my renters for four months, a third of them have been 20 days late and to pay the rent. The vast majority of them uh, are in gig economies, meaning that they are now consultants to companies since 2021. None of those gig economy jobs are picked up by the BLS, and they are having trouble getting going from gig to gig and getting the ends to meet. And I have a number of friends that own thousands and thousands and thousands of apartments across the country, and they see the same thing. Now, we don't see it in the data. And so it's not screaming that it's bad in the data. But I do believe we're going to see it in utilization of credit. I expect us to see it in actual purchases. I would not be surprised if the tail end of the holiday season is very weak. And I believe that we're going to see it in the one queue big time. Yeah. And once it, by the time you actually see it, it's too late. That's that's why people always miss it. And by the way, you'll, you've only had to get this right four times. Preserve and protect your pile. Let's just go back our career, at least a quarter century. You had to get it right coming out of 2000, 2001, out of 2007, out of tw the early part of 2020 and now. Right. So we're not like running around like a bunch of, you know, you know, wolf criers talking bearish every single year. I mean, there's specific points in a cycle where in particular uh, it, it pays to pay attention. Now, on that uh, last one on the history, Mike, this, uh, Mike Green, this book sits on my desk as a friendly reminder all the time. Uh, it sits on top of a piece of paper that says the man in the arena, uh, just to make sure that whenever I'm about to take the crazy pills, I have to get up, look at that book, and remind, this was written in 1941, as I'm sure you know. Um, but it's it's not different this time that people go bananas and think it's uh, it's it's going to end fine. I so so you know this is one of the things Mike and I talk about all the time is is this underlying dynamic of when are they right the proverbial they going to wake up and I do think that there is actually something different this time you've obviously know what I'm talking about in terms of things like target date funds yes. passive investments 401ks that are directed into purely systematic strategies that are tied to your age and buying on a market cap related basis right. We can explain an awful lot, not all, but we can explain an awful lot of the behavior and the valuation increases. Just mechanically imagine you introduced a robot that had a very simple response function. Every time I give it cash, it buys stocks. Well, what's going to happen to the valuation of stocks if I hand it to that robot relative to handing it to somebody like Mike Taylor, who 
is probably going to spend part of it on Formula One, and the other part of it is going to actually decide to allocate it in a somewhat thoughtful manner, right? Valuations will rise under those conditions. What will go up most? The stuff that went up last, right? So we actually do know that something is very different. We know that there's relatively low levels versus history of participation from investors in single names. The participation in the indices is off the charts. That's why I opened up by highlighting how incredible the display of what happened when NASDAQ unexpectedly rebalanced the index, right? We saw this actually writ large in yesterday's behavior. And so this is actually something that is different. And it becomes really a question of how long does that maintain itself? How long does that change? You know, I'm known for highlighting a phrase, why are you hearing this now? Or why are you reading this now? If you Google the headlines, 100% equity allocations. The academic research is now coming out that is saying you should never own anything other than equities. You should always be 100% allocated to equities because it's always going to outperform over time, right? What that's telling you is they're desperately trying to get people in. They want you to be- Of course. And I'm also going to highlight, you know, like you mentioned that we're not all perma bears. I would encourage people to go back and look at the immediate aftermath of the pandemic. You know, I was on the exactly these types of broadcasts telling people like, look, there's so much spending coming our way. I can't imagine how stocks are going down, right? We're looking at a different situation, but now we're exactly where we should be. And I'm going to tell a very funny personal anecdote on this. We are all about the same age. We all have the experience. Everybody can pull up the charts and say, hey, look at the history, Right. Everybody has access to that. That used to be a competitive advantage. It's not anymore. So the younger generation is looking at guys like us who are saying, like, guys, be somewhat thoughtful about this. Be cautious. And they're saying, why would I want to listen to you, old man? Right? You know, Mike Taylor has his son who's doing things that he's never done before. My oldest son has followed me into financial services. And many times he's very similar to me. I've cautioned him, like, Ryan, look, I've made basically every mistake in the book. Think about, you know, how you could behave differently and, you know, not make those same mistakes. Take some of my advice. And you know what he said to me? He was younger when he said this. He's wisened up or maybe I've wisened up in the process. He goes, Dad, you're right. We are very similar. But what you don't understand is I'm better and smarter than you in every way. (laughs) That is what the younger generation hears. We can talk all we want. The simple reality is they are better and smarter and more youthful versions of ourselves, right? All we're bringing is some perspective and they can choose to listen or they can choose to ignore it. Yeah. Uh, and, and as long as dad, uh, I have your credit card, we're, we're good, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, uh, it's, that doesn't hurt. it's an amazing thing uh, to hear. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I live with teenage, I have two, two of my four kids are teenagers. Of course, I know the one and only Max Taylor, uh, who would not be, uh, you know, uh, Let's just say that it's a not not a cheap sport that his dad has has decided to contribute uh, graciously to. Uh, on the questions, I just have to address some of the uh, the more thoughtful top rated questions, Mike. They really have to do with Mike Green. They have to do with all your work on that front. Like, when is essentially when is the hard stopper for that or passive investing, and how is it linked the four hundred one k cycle to the labor cycle? Uh, because again, we finally it took a while. But we're finally on the wrong side of the labor cycle, being the latest of late cycle indicators, et cetera, et cetera, nine straight revisions to NFP 
Um, we're actually at on job cuts. Last week's data, um, we're now up 115% year over year on people losing their jobs. Like we highlighted the government job spikes. Those are financed with your tax dollars. But the actually people getting fired is at the highest rate since, drumroll, 2008. Yeah, no, so so you're, you're hitting on, um, one, the economic cycle of it. And so I just, you know, the math for people is actually really interesting. It's, you know, it's a very, very complex topic when you think about it. Imagine you and I are both customers of Vanguard, right? And you stop contributing or start taking withdrawals and I um, am contributing, right? There isn't necessarily a transaction that occurs because my contributions can actually fund your withdrawals. They don't necessarily have to transact. But the minute it actually moves past the point that my contributions outweigh your withdrawals, then they do have to start selling. Then they do have to start hitting the market. And we are seeing some signs that the market is increasingly on that razor's edge, right? We see events like October where the money comes back in, but the underperformance of things like the Russell 2000 on an equal weighted basis is telling you that money is leaving in aggregate. Oh. What we're actually seeing is the average manager, particularly the active manager to whom the older generation has allocated more funds, they are getting fired. This is pressuring the Franklin resources, the large traditional money managers. They are starting to see that money go out. And so I continue to come back to the exact same observation. One is when the employment cycle turns, those numbers can change very, very quickly. And if there's a, a key component of why I've been too conservative this year, it's been because of that awareness. And so, you know, when it hits, it hits. Yeah, it's second, a second. You want to go? No, finish with that. Okay. And then the second component is remember that they don't want that to happen, right? So they are changing the rules. They are now coming out with their research. They, the proverbial they, and again, it's not really a conspiracy. It's just, you know, Vanguard funds research, BlackRock funds research. Why? Because they want you to buy stocks. The creation of the S&P 500, people forget this, was because Merrill Lynch wanted people to buy stocks. They wanted to demonstrate to people, here's the best way to invest, right? Here's why you should be participating in the market. Because by the way, that's the only way we get paid. So it, it's, you know, when those, when that data starts to come out, they are actually doing it for a reason. They're trying to rationalize why this is occurring, right? We're rationalizing why we should have the highest valuations when interest rates have suddenly spiked, right? Remember two years ago, it was valuations are really high because interest rates are super low. Well, now interest rates are high and valuations are high, certainly for the for the leading stocks. Why is that? Well, now they're negative duration assets, right? Previously, we, we, we argued they were long duration assets, meaning that they're very sensitive to interest rates. And then interest rates rise, and now people are saying, oh, they're negative duration assets, meaning they go up when, when bonds go down, mm. right? We're going to tell any story to explain what's going on, but at the end of the day, it's about these flows. And when the flows ultimately are going to turn is going to be a function of the economy turning. And that means that stocks have moved from a leading asset to a lagging asset. And I think that's the easiest way to think about the dynamics of what we're watching. Yeah, that's a, a great um, and short tutorial on a, on a critical topic. I'll give it, um, we've ran out of time here, but I'll give you the final word here, Mike T. And I want to try to get a comment too on when you said everything you said, like we've done a lot of work on this, obviously, slide 86, guys, um, people have also run out of money, right? Like the, the people, not Wall Street, not the marketing, not everything you just said. I'm talking about 
the people. So on the right side, for this is the 401k hardship withdrawal rate, okay? I've never seen, I didn't even know what that was. Uh, obviously, we're all three of us are, are, are blessed and in a good financial position where that's not us, but it, it's running squarely with that left chart, which kind of runs with what you said, Mike T, on all those landlords that you know, like difficult, difficulty paying for your, you know, to live. Um, that's not like fake news. I mean, that, that chart just went vertical. Um, and it went vertical when you had to start paying your student loans back, when you weren't getting all these goodies from the U.S. government back. Um, you know, it's, it's a crazy thing for a lot of people, you know? Um, I mean, I don't know if that's where you, that's kind of where I want to end with like just that's exactly what I see, Keith. And I saw it starting in the summer. One of my big guys called me who owns thousands and thousands of properties across the country. And he goes, does, does everyone know we're in a recession yet? And this is, of course, nobody did, but he sees it first. When people have to actually have to write those checks on a real-time basis, you see it first there. And you see it in auto loans and you see it in a lot of other places. But stocks are still at the high because liquidity has been jammed in. So for next year, and, and it's always about how do we protect and how do we prosper? If you are running a hedged book, I will tell you what I'm doing right now. I am picking off all these vertical names that have been blow-ups by hedge funds that are up 60, 70, 80, 100% in the past you know, 30 days. Uh, and I'm just going little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, almost across the board if there isn't a meaningful fundamental event that's happening here. That's how I'm hedging my book on hedge fund blow-up shorts. I want to be shorting that. Second, if you're just a long investor, which is 99.9% of you, welcome. It's going to be a challenging year in my view. Uh, but if you to protect yourself, uh, I, I still adore the two-year bonded treasuries. I think that that is going to end up net-net being a big winner. And additionally, own companies that have pricing power, and I, I realize, I, I apologize, this takes some work. All ones that have pricing power at least can hold pricing power and or have a meaningful buyback. And might I recommend um, Cigna, which is a HMO that just announced a gigantic buyback. Uh, and I think that that's going to carry it throughout the year and it'll end up becoming just kind of a bulletproof stock. Uh, but that's the sort of thing. So look for the buybacks and look for the pricing power to stay. The ones that have negative pricing power, in my view, are going to get absolutely shellacked. And this includes autos and a bazillion other spaces, restaurants, and on and on and on that I think are going to have serious problems when it comes to pricing and therefore margins. Margins are going to collapse. And we will see that in the front half of this year as the pricing comps are very, very difficult. Yeah, you've, you've nailed that, by the way, between, again, end of July. Don't forget, we're old enough to remember that, the end of January, the end of July. It, from the end of July to those October lows, you know, the, the, the carnage in those categories, Mike Taylor was, you know, that's the only reason why you rallied in Carvana when you, you have to go from 56 to 26 to go to 38, you know? So it's a, it's a, it's a wild thing for those of you out there who think that it's, um, that this is going to be easy for, from here. Um, that's great. Uh, we, we would probably and collectively not agree with that. Uh, this game is rarely easy. And when, when most people start to tell you that, this is so easy. We're smarter than all these, you know, chubby old guys. Um, ah, we tried to do this, like, in particular right now so that you have at least some framework and a risk management um, you know, exercise to go through. If you, if, you, if, you, if you sold the highs in 2021 and you bought the lows and you're 
80% long queues like everybody on Twitter, probably want to book some of that too, right? I mean, that's pretty awesome, you know? So, um, guys, thank you for, uh, for again, giving a, a really, um, a, a really full-blown, real conversation the way, the way that I like to have it. Happy holidays to all. Take care, Keith. Yeah. Thanks to the mics. How good are they, by the way? Uh, thanks for spending some time with us. We appreciate it. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Is not responsible for errors and accuracies or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.